0: Welcome to the Healthy Gospel Church Podcast, a podcast where we explore all aspects of church life while also shining a spotlight on good practice. My name is David Meredith, I'll be your host. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you hear, please help these algorithms out and share it as far and wide as you can. Well, I'm here in Inverness, Scotland, with Dr. Helen Rosevere, a veteran missionary of the Congo, later called Zaire. But can you just tell us, maybe where where you were raised, where you were brought up?
1: I was born into a normal English family down in the southeast of England, and uh, uh, went to I went to boarding school for seven years. I think that had a very big formative effect on me, and uh, then university. And whilst at university, I, for the first time ever, I heard the simple gospel truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Now,
0: in, in you becoming a Christian, I understand there were a variety of things used in that. There was, well, you, you, you tell me the factors that led to that.
1: Well, there was a hunger in my heart. I went up to university. I'd been brought up a churchgoer, but I'd never heard the gospel. i never so much point in it. I date myself by saying that, I was a teenager during the war, World War II, not one. <laughs> and uh, I felt God was not able to cope. And like many other families, we had family members who went to the front and we never saw them again. And uh, it all seemed so stupid. So when I went up to university, I really decided to give up pretending about God. And I, I, I never quite dared to say I didn't believe in God in case I was wrong. So I, I kept one foot in each Camp, and uh, uh, but there I met with Christian girls who were just different, and uh, they they at my invitation I asked them where they used to go to after supper in the evenings, and rather shyly they said, well, they had a prayer meeting. I'd never even heard of a prayer meeting, so I said, well, can I come? And I went, and I heard these girls praying to God in a way I'd never realized was possible. They knew God, and. uh, That was the first introduction to me, that God was somebody that you could know and love. And so through their influence on my life and their kindness and their thoughtfulness, and they were always the same. They didn't alter. They weren't different one day from another. And this attracted me. And then, really, I came to the Lord because I was in a house party at Christmas and something had been said at the evening meal and I got mad. Uh, and uh, nobody else They looked horrified that a Christian could be so angry. (laughs) So I I was ashamed, and I rushed out of the dining room. I went up to the dormitory, and I threw myself in my bed, and I was crying, and I just said, God, if there is a God, make yourself known to me. And I looked up through my tears, and on the wall of the uh, dormitory, there was a text of Scripture, but the rain had come through and washed out the last word, and it just read, Be still, and know that I am The verse, of course, would have had the word God at the end, but it had been washed away. And it just of God himself spoke to me, be still and know that I am God. And that just overwhelmed me. And I was just, I sometimes say I just fell in love with Jesus. I thought this is so wonderful that God's son loved me and died for me and that, from that moment on, the rest of my life, I just had one desire in life after that, was to tell others about Jesus. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you went up to Cambridge at that time, and let me just explore a little thing there about the sort of gender thing. Medicine in those days, was it very much a man's world? Yes. How did you feel about that?
1: It, well, I didn't worry me, but it, the lecturers were all quite certain it was a man's world, and they did make it very, very uncomfortable for us women students. I mean, there were very few of us... In our class, there were 250 students in our year medical, and 25 of us were girls. And at least 13 of those girls had dropped out before the end of the three-year course at Cambridge, just because of the unkindliness of lecturers, and, and uh, uh, they made to feel fools. <laughs> uh, it, it was not an easy life, uh, but there were Christian students, men students, and no, no other Christian girls, Uh, And so I used to sit with them and it was a sort of defence mechanism.
0: Was there a sort of unspoken, as they would say today, glass ceiling, an expectation that girls could only rise so far in medicine and no further?
1: Possibly. I I don't know. Uh, Other people say that the men felt threatened by us. Because at the end of the day, it was often girls who came top of classes. (laughs) uh, And I think they felt this was their world and they didn't want us in it. Uh, I, I don't know why, but it wasn't very pleasant. In fact, I was one of the last group of students at Cambridge, women students, where we weren't allowed to get our degree. We took the exams, we were given the degree, but we weren't allowed to go up to graduation day. So I have no photograph of graduation day. I got my degree through the mail.
0: That's quite extraordinary for today's viewer and yes. today's person.
1: <laughs> my sister was a year younger than me. She had graduation day and right. got, her, got her degree. <laughs>
0: Now, <clears throat> folk talk about a call to the mission field. I understand that your call came very early in your Christian experience.
1: Same night that I knew I was saved, that Jesus died to save me. I, I just I just felt it was awful. I'd lived 19 years and never heard it. Yeah. I thought, this is terrible. I, d- I just want everybody to know. And I knew immediately that that's why I was... I didn't like doing medicine. I didn't like medicine. I wasn't built like that. But I suddenly thought, well, it's to serve. I can use that to serve others. And uh, so I became a doctor in order to go to the mission field to tell others about Jesus. And
0: uh, Now, did you know that you were going off to Africa at that no, stage?
1: No, I didn't know where I would go. I just knew I would be a missionary. Uh, and uh, when I went to missionary training college for six months, every week we had a missionary from somewhere in the world. And every week I got a call to a different field. And almost everyone always said, we need a doctor. Now, usually the only doctor sitting in the room. (laughs) But uh, at the end, he made it clear it was to be Africa. The African church, I wanted to go to somewhere where there was no church. I wanted to go to somewhere they'd never yet heard of Jesus. But the African church that was already established sent home people to say, please, please send us a doctor. And so said, we've no one to help keep the evangelists and the pastors healthy and to look after their children. And so my call to Congo was through the Congolese church.
0: <clears throat> Which is, as it should be, the church calling folk. <clears throat> Can I just take you back a little bit f- further back to graduation? Clearly, you felt called to be a doctor. You just graduated. You had to build up some you know, post-grad experience um, how did that come about? Where did you do that?
1: I should have done that. <laughs> and I always tell everybody else they must do that.
0: Don't tell me you didn't do I it.
1: didn't do any. I, I graduated in December, and in January I was in missionary training school, and the following year I was on the mission field.
0: So just get... This is a newly qualified doctor going almost... Your first job yes. is in, literally, the jungle in Africa. Yes. With... Hardly any medicine, hardly any equipment, nothing. And was there much backup? Did you have the help of consultants or senior people?
1: No, it was. uh, I think that was the biggest shock. Was the realization of the fantastic responsibilities suddenly lands on you, and everybody else had so much expectations. You're a doctor. So you can do everything. (laughs) And so I was the senior chief consultant from paediatrics to geriatrics and everything in between. But I was also the bottle washer.
0: So you had a, a meteoric career shift then from zero to consultant in a day.
1: That's right. And that was frightening. I knew within minutes that I hadn't a clue.
0: So were you doing some medicine? Were you doing some surgery? Were you doing obstetrics? Were you Everything. doing
1: the what? Everything. Everything. I must have brought thousands and thousands of babies into the world. And uh, and not only for the Africans. The, the Africans are so lovely. The Africans love you. And uh, without, there's no questions. They just love you. That you're there to serve them and they know it. And they love you, uh, but and they'd no expectations because they'd never seen a doctor before in my part where I went to. But the other pale-skinned people, missionaries, and commercial workers, they all were comparing to a hospital back at home. And if they got sick, they knew they went to hospital. What they'd need, they'd have blood tests done. And oh, I couldn't do blood tests, and they had all sorts of other tests done and I couldn't do them. They'd have x-ray things and I couldn't take x-rays. I hadn't got an x-ray machine. (laughs) So it was awful. When they came, you felt felt very small.
0: Was there anyone you could go to with with questions, things that you you just really had to work it all out? No,
1: but you prayed.
0: Yeah. So there was someone you could go to. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And it was was true. It was true. I I mean, I've known right in the middle of doing a surgery, in an operation, and I have not of meeting something that I haven't a clue what it is, what to do, and literally then, God, please, what do I do? Where do I go? Uh, and y- you almost, I-, I don't want to oversay this or overstate but you almost felt Him guide your hands to do the right thing. And um, God was wonderfully good to us, and he-, he gave us quite outstanding results that I could never, ever have achieved of myself. And you just knew this isn't me. This is the God who brought me here.
0: <laughs> so your first position was it to develop a missionary hospital?
1: Yes, um, that's what they wanted. In fact, the talking drums beat the day that I got there and the talking drums sent the message out 800 miles in every direction. Our doctor has come. <laughs> and the, the word they used in Swahili for the doctor is the same word they used for the witch doctor. So this is our doctor instead of the witch doctor. And and people just came. And people just came every direction. You just didn't know. And I had no language. You start off with absolutely nothing. and uh, But God was very good. He really was. He, he gave an ability to uh, spot what I call spot diagnosis, which uh, I wouldn't rely on here. <coughs> but a patient walking through the door towards me, I see something, I just... I, I Suspects them before they've even spoken, and um, he helped us so enormously.
0: <laughs> I, I'd want to turn to one or two sort of specific ideas and issues that you dealt with through your missionary service. The first one is that of they call it today burnout and and stress. I think you experienced that, didn't you? And you, you know, was it was seven, eight, nine years on. Uh, there were times in your life that you really, really, God was dealing with you in, in that direction. Yes.
1: Um, certainly by the end of five years it was, I was getting very irritable with sheer weariness and the, and the weight of responsibility and I'd get aggravated over stupid, silly things. And it was an African, really, it was my, my African helper who spoke to me and said, Dr. Helen, God would never speak to a patient like that, and you felt so rebuked, and you felt so, so awful that I, he was a student. I was teaching to to love and serve the Lord, and here it was him who was actually doing the teaching. But God was always produced somebody from somewhere, very frequently through Africans. And um, the, my African pastor, uh, he he saw that I was really stressed at one stage, and he went to my pale-skinned director and um, made, made arrangements. And he came to my village and said, pack your bag and come out after me. So I packed a rucksack and got my bicycle and I cycled out behind him about 18 miles to his home in a forest village where he told his wife I was coming. She got a room ready for me and they just cared for me for a week uh, where mostly it was sleep.
0: I mean, People imagine that missionaries are sanctified overnight. With most of us, it does take a life Time to really grow and, and knock off the hard edges, but I know in, in your career you dealt a little bit with, with with pride issues. Can you tell us how how that came about?
1: Yes, I wasn't really conscious of them myself, but it was my African pastor who drew my attention. In fact, he said, "Helen." You don 't think an African will ever be able to do the things you do, that uh, they 'll never be as good a doctor as you are, and you don't really think an African can ever preach as well as you preach and I, I was very shattered by this, and I had to really sort of get down and think about it. I mean I said unconsciously, that is true that, that i I did and it was an occasion in the in the classroom I was trying to train an African who'd just graduated, to take over the lecturing of first-year students from me. And uh, I was doing a lecture on the uh, physiology of the eye. And uh, he said from the back of the classroom, Dr. Helen, would you show them the diagram in, and he probably said volume two. And I turned around and took down from the classroom bookcase, uh, volume two of my physiology book, and turned up to page 760 Watt. Uh, and uh, I suddenly knew that the whole atmosphere in the classroom had changed, that the students had a 72-page <coughs> booklet that I had printed off a little Gestetner printing machine for them, which was the total of their physiology. And here was I down volume two was 700-odd pages. And they suddenly backed off from me that I'd spoiled everything. They felt they were getting somewhere. They felt they were getting on well and suddenly they realised that what they got was minute was one tenth of my textbooks and um, that was another point to me that <coughs> I hadn't sensed that this was between me and them that my being pale skin uh, and thinking I knew more than they knew was a hindrance to their listening to the gospel and there were lots of other ways, there was, there was an occasion was down at the brook, brick kiln training a team of Africans how, A, how to build a bitkill, and B, how to empty it when it was burned. And um, a nurse came down and said, you need it up in the hospital at once. So I went straight up to the little and Thatch hospital we had, and there was a patient, a the mother there, who needed an operation to have her baby. And uh, I was scrubbing up, and having scrubbed up my hands with a new nail brush, but my hands were sore and bleeding from handling bricks. I wasn't used to. And then I put my hands out for the nurse to pour on antiseptic alcohol, and I was sort of angry with God. I said, God, this is so stupid. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor to help these people. Uh, Why can't you send somebody else to do the building? And later, I went to the African group uh, who who led the hospital with me uh, for our weekly prayer meeting. And I said, to him, I need your prayers because I'm angry with God at the way he's doing things. <laughs> and they prayed for me and they said, Doctor, don't you realize when you're being a doctor with a white coat on and a stethoscope around your neck, we're scared of you. And whatever you say to us, we say yes, yes. When you're down the brick kiln and your hands are sore and bleeding like ours are and you're speaking the local tribal language and you make mistakes and we laugh at you, that's when we listen to you telling us about the love of Jesus and, and that was another way God had to deal with the things in me that stopped them listening to the gospel uh, and uh, show me that his way was better. Mm-hmm. Can I talk
0: about another issue for a little while? And I know a lot of our viewers will be interested in it. This is a whole issue of singleness. Um, people often call singleness as the gift, <laughs> but others say it's a gift that nobody wants. Um, I know that I suspect that you struggled with this whole issue. Can, can you tell us about that? Are you naturally a single? Did you embrace the gift with thanksgiving?
1: Mostly, yes. I, I, I really, um, as I said earlier, when I knew that God sent his son to die for me because he so loved me, I really did fall in love with Jesus. Uh, and uh, I've never really... Not truly ever wanted anyone else, and uh, uh, I think I never thought of it as a gift of being single. I I just Jesus was the gift, (laughs) but uh, there were one or two occasions during the rebellion when we were held captive of guerrilla soldiers that you you desperately need. I was so alone, and um, not just because I was the only pale skin amongst thousands of dark skin, but I was alone because i was separated out by the rebel soldiers and very evilly treated and um humiliated it was a shocking time and i just wished there was somebody there uh, and i sort of uh, In fact, I did a silly thing, really. When it came to the night time, I felt I couldn't face another night of this awfulness. And uh, I'd heard Americans speaking to their wives and wives speaking to their husbands as honey. So I really used that word to God. It seemed awfully wrong of me, but I just said, honey, I just need comfort. And I I really, in my mind, I was thinking I needed a husband there who would put his arms around me. Uh, And uh, initially... I think it was a verse of scripture and God said to me, I will be to you a husband. And I said, but I want his arms around me. (laughs) And his graciousness, I really did almost physically sense the arms of God around me. And the next day, the other people in the prison cell where we were, they said, you slept all night. I said, yes. Nobody else has slept all night at all. Uh, And it was just the, the assurance that God was in charge and, so I really never wanted anything else. And I think God knew me well enough to say that I was best single because <laughs> I think if I'd had a husband, I'd have wanted 12 children. <laughs> I used to have, When I was a teenager, I was going to have 12 children. I knew all the names they were going to have. <laughs> and I think God knew it would get between me and him.
0: In In your biography, you do say that growing up you were... Whilst not a member of the Awkward Squad, you were an individual, you were, you know, spirited, let's say. Um, Has that continued all your life? Yes.
1: Uh, Funny, I was talking to somebody yesterday that I've had to come to realise that God, the Holy Spirit's work is to change us, to become more like Jesus. But he doesn't actually change us. Uh, I've had to come to terms with that we're still who he made us. Uh, and he doesn't actually change our character. He makes our character moulded into the line of his will. So uh, I'm still me. And um, there are times I wish I wasn't. <laughs> but but it, it, God uses you as he made you. I think think that's what I'm trying to say.
0: But you strike me, you're a character, you're an individual, you are really not afraid to go against the flow, to do, I was going to say your own thing, but that sounds maybe selfish. You're not afraid just really to go against convention.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. <coughs> uh, and uh, But you have to learn to do that in God's way. Yeah. And, and there were times of course when I wanted to do it in my way. Yeah. Uh, And then that would irritate the other missionaries. They felt that, I mean, people would say that, um, I've I've heard others use the phrase about me that, um, uh, with my relationship to the dark-skinned people, that they'd say you were before your time. Because I could see them as leaders, and I could see the, the potential in them, when others could only see them as ignorant people who had no background and had no training and couldn't. Be leaders. Uh, and in making my own, oh, he was a lovely boy, John Mangadima, uh, he was my colleague, I'd trained him and taught him, and I made him leader to take over from me when independence came in the country. And, and there were a lot of people who were very, almost anti that, feeling that uh, they weren't ready for it, but
0: um, so yes, I, I
1: did put other people's backs up. Uh, that was the me that came out rather than godliness that the the thing done I think was right, but not it was done in my way, not his way.
0: Can I take you back to the rebellion and you've spoken and you've written extensively about that dark period when you were imprisoned in the hospital compound for was it five months? Five months. Uh, you speak especially about one particular night of, of terror that, that you experienced, and I'm sure many other. There was a night where, <laughs> you know, you and in that, that room, there was just the most awful depravity at, at so many levels. Um, was that a changing point in your life?
1: Possibly. I... I... I don't know whether it really changed things. It, it, at, the, at the initial moment, there was an overwhelming realization that God was in charge of the situation. He said to me really, well, he didn't use words. Later on, I, I put words to what I sensed that night, that, that he was saying, can you thank me? And everything in me wanted to say no. It was too horrific. Why didn't he take us out of it? And He was really saying, can you thank me for trusting you? And that was a changing point for me, yes. Till then, I trust God. But to think of God trusting me, in other words, he was saying, I could have taken you out. I could have prevented this. could have saved you from it. But I have a purpose, God speaking. I have a purpose that's bigger. You can't see the whole. And this has a part in it. Can you thank me for trusting you with your part in it? And I think that did, swing my attitude to things to realize that God is in charge and we can trust Him and we can trust Him with the deeply impossible things the deeply hurtful things what we went through was five months of physical suffering but I think of some people I think of mothers with teenagers who get onto drugs and one thing or another and who go through a lifetime of heart agony over it all and it seems to go on but God knows and God has a purpose, and he is working, and if you can trust him and thank him. I was talking to parents of a quite severely disabled child recently, uh, and they're Christian people, but they were heart aching. how do they handle it? Uh, and just saying to them, God must trust you a tremendous amount. God would know that this baby needed a home where he'd be loved and cared for despite the disability, and he's entrusted it to you. And certainly to watch their faces and to see them changing and becoming willing to accept from God the privilege of caring for that child. And I think, again, that word privilege, privilege has underlined almost everything in my Christian lifetime, right from the first night when I was told it was a privilege to live for Jesus. And that's been an underlining thing to me that God, when he saves you, he could just put you on one side and say, Okay, you're saved, now get on with it. But he doesn't. He he invites you to be his fellow worker, his fellow servant and it's privilege, it's all privilege and that um so I think that's been a big word to me and I think it became a big word to me, particularly during the suffering of the rebellion that it was a privilege to know something even a little bit of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings.
0: Uh, Our theology would say that that night God was with you indeed the room was filled with angels. A cynic would say, well, they weren't really much good they must have been asleep in the job. Um, (laughs) How do you feel about that?
1: No, since then, because hindsight's a wonderful thing And uh, that's why it's difficult when you ask me what I feel at the time. You can't answer that, because with hindsight, I now know what I think. And since then, God has given me opportunities of serving others and helping others and counselling with others and pointing others to Jesus that I would never have had uh, if I hadn't gone through the experience myself. Because I've been through experiences, others will listen to me. I have a right, they think, I have a right to speak to them.
0: Because, I mean... During the rebellion in the compound at that time, there was abuse at all levels, psychological, physical, sexual, the whole lot. Uh, I guess it's a little bit like the Queen Mother. Remember when Buckingham Palace was blitzed? She says, now I can look the East End
1: in the face. That's absolutely right. And so
0: I guess a privileged Cambridge-educated doctor, you now have an experience that was really way outside of your normal experience. And do you find that women especially can can relate to you and say, Helen, I think you know how I feel?
1: Possibly that way. Certainly, I find when I'm, I'm a lot of my life is spent with university students to challenge them to give at least a year of their lives in service in another a third world country. And um, not necessarily in mission, but, but in service to the Lord and Saviour. and. Uh, because people would say to me, how can you see that? When I, I sometimes I had, I said, there's no country in the world that we can't get into today. And then you pause and you say, you may never come out. <laughs> and they sort of grin. But you've the right to say that to students when you've been in a situation like that. And they'll listen to it because they know you suffered. Actually, right right during the rebellion, uh, uh, just within a matter of weeks after I was so badly, I I lost my back teeth through the boot of a rebel soldier. And um, I was able to go and minister to a crowd of captured Greek Cypriots. They were the commercial workers of our area. And they'd been rounded up by these rebel soldiers and thrown into a house. And there was a, a little woman there who was expecting a baby, and she'd been very severely kicked and beaten, and was in great pain. And I was taken down to uh, help her. And when I entered this house, they all knew me. I was their only doctor for the whole area, and I'd looked after them in sickness and and birth and what have you. Uh, uh, But their heads were down, they were absolutely despairing, nobody wanted to look up or anything. And I dealt with this little lady, and I preached the gospel to them, and, as I left the place, they looked up with smiles and you 'd lifted their whole atmosphere and because they had some of them had seen me the night I was so severely beaten, and because i 'd been through it, I had the right to speak to them who were going through it, so all through, God has very graciously shown this is part of why I took you that route uh, it gives you the right to associate with others. And to challenge young people to be willing to go to a mission field. They say, How can you do that when you know what they may suffer out there? Why, well, as I've been through it, it's all privilege. Uh, uh, and it is, it is. If they could just see that it is a privilege.
0: If the rebel who kicked your teeth in came into this room just now, Helen, what would you say to him? Could, could you forgive him, for example?
1: Yes, interesting that, because I. When we, went, when we were rescued and taken home, I had to face that question. And uh, the Lord took me to the spot where, yes, the, the, the realizing that I don't forgive people, God forgives people. And I have to accept the fact that God has forgiven. And uh, when I got back to Congo afterwards, a moment arrived when I was actually asked to go to the prison to speak to me there. And my friend, John Mangadima, said, the man who treated you so evil is in the prison. Would you go and see him? And I had a fight. I didn't want to go. I thought, I have forgiven him, but I don't want to see him again. And it took six days till I gave in and said, okay, Lord, and we went to see him. But in actual fact, when I got there, I didn't actually see him because they had been moved off to another prison. But uh, I, I had to deal with that in myself. There was a hesitancy. Now, yes. There's a lovely story told of a lady, Corrie Ten Boom, a a lady who was a wonderful missionary for the Lord, and she suffered through internment camp during World War II under the Germans. In fact, her sister died through it. And on an occasion later, when Corrie was taking a meeting, a woman came towards her to greet her with an outstretched hand, and somebody said, Do you know her? She's one of the guards who was in that prison where you were held and where your sister died. And she said, she's given this in public testimony, she said, in that instance, I had to say, God, put your love into me because I can't love her. My love is not sufficient, but yours is. And I think that's what you come to, that you're not asked to love or to forgive in that sense. He forgives them through you, and he loves them through you. And it really is that you're, One of the children's hymns, Channels Only, Blessed Master, we're just a channel for the love of God and uh, uh, He meets people's needs in wonderful ways through you.
0: Now you are now in your 80s, you're living in Belfast, you're not retired by any means, you've spoken at Urbana, you've done Desiring God, you're speaking for groups like Proc Trust, you're you're still speaking with with students. Um, Is there more left in the gas tank, Helen? (laughs)
1: Well, uh, I'm having to let, I'm having to allow the Lord to cut things back. Uh, I, I just want to go on going on, but I, I'm not as able as I was. And so, but there are other jobs you can do. The Lord's Lord had to show that you don't have to be out and about and travelling all over the world all the time. That my church needed somebody to help with being treasurer in the church because I can sit at a computer and do do the typing on the computer without rushing around the world. And I've had to accept that any task he gives us to do is a privilege. And it is a privilege when you're in your 80s to be given jobs you can do that you're releasing somebody else who could be travelling a lot to get away and do it while you do the background jobs, and they're just as important. They need to be done. <laughs>
0: And you're writing just now, you've come under the spell of our mutual friend William Mackenzie and our friends at Christian Focus, and you've brought out a few books. We've got Living Faith, a lot of the subtitle, Willing to be Stirred as a Pot of paint." Tell us just a little bit about this book.
1: <laughs> well, one of the first meetings I took after I came back from Africa uh, and uh, I had to readapt to living in UK instead of in Africa, which I loved. Uh, and he gave me this picture of the, um, there's a hymn in the old Keswick hymn book, Stir me, O stir me, Lord, I care not how, but stir my heart in passion for the world. And that was sung the night I first stood up to offer for the mission field. And it says, stir me to give, stir me to go, but stir me most to pray. Is line three in verse one, Uh, and so this book was based on that. The the stirring to uh, to give everything you've got of yourself, your talents, your life, everything, your ambitions, stir me to go anywhere he sends you to your next door neighbour or the other side of the world, and stir me to pray in every circumstance. I've learned now that uh, when you're stopped at red traffic lights, you've got 50 seconds till they change and you can pray for a mission. and you have the mission in his name stuck on your driving wheel. It's buying up every opportunity. Uh, and uh, that's living faith. That's faith that's for real in your everyday living, in everything you're doing, it is turned to serve him.
0: That's tremendous. And this other one, <clears throat> living holiness. Folk don't talk much about holiness. Um, these days are again great subtitle, willing to be the legs of a galloping horse. A few sentences in, in this book Helen. Uh,
1: yes, holiness is so, uh, it's an intrinsically wonderful name. It's a name that just means God. Uh, we, we've no other explanation of the word holiness and the great hunger in your heart as a Christian. To become like Jesus, that's holy. He said to be holy as he is holy. And when I tried to get down to think of that, I got it in four phases, which are nice and easy to talk about. The need of repentance, the need of love, and and there were four steps. And I saw them like they don't have to come in that order. Mm -hmm. And sometimes one or another is more... Important than another, and I thought it was like a galloping horse that you <laughs> needs four legs. He can't gallop with only three. But you don't see the order they come, and sometimes you think they're all four off the ground at the same time. And uh, so that's how that came about. Mm-hmm.
0: And this one, living sacrifice, willing to be whittled as an arrow. Again, I just love the subtitles. A few sentences about this one.
1: We know about sacrifice, but we. Basically, as a Christian, I would say the only one who really knows sacrifice is Jesus. He sacrificed his life on Calvary for us. And if there's a verse in Romans that says that we should be living sacrifices and that the desiring to give all I've got to serve him. And it sometimes seems like sacrifice, but in fact, really, from our angle, it isn't. It, it, other people may think you sacrificed everything. I think people said I'd sacrifice my home, my, my friends, my language, my culture in going to the middle of Africa. But to us, it was privilege. That's the other side of the word, sacrifice. And so this was, um, but you would have to read the book to one about the whittled arrow. And this this one here, Digging digging Ditches, ditches.
0: (laughs) presumably this would be a great starter for your life story. Digging Ditches, the latest chapter of an inspirational life. I'm sure you didn't write the subtitle.
1: I certainly didn't. (laughs) In fact, I think William Mackenzie probably put that on. It sounds like one of William's. (laughs) No. I came home from Africa to nurse my mother, and my dear mother died and i thought i'd go back to africa but at that moment i had to go into hospital for major surgery i had a breast cancer and i uh, when i came round from anaesthetic i asked the nurse to open my bible at where the marker was and to put it in front of me and then to leave me alone for a bit and i was asking the lord for direction for the next phase of my life and um, it was opened uh, And two kings, my Bible just falls open at it, two kings chapter three. And I thought, how can you get guidance out of two kings? (laughs) But there it was. And there was this verse that came out. I said, I want one of those verses that says, the Lord says, so nobody can argue with it. And I was reading the old authorised version, which is all I had in those days. But there it was. The Lord said, make this valley full of ditches. And um, the valley was clear. My mother just died. I'd got cancer. My mission was not going to send me back to Africa because of my own health. And it was, a, it was a dark valley. And he said, make, that was business, that was a job, something to do, it was active, make this valley full of ditches. And so eventually I got through and I said, okay, I'll dig a Suez Canal. And he said, I didn't ask for a Suez Canal. <coughs> I asked for a ditch. And of course, if you read the story in 2 Kings 3, it was just small, might be a meter long. Two centimeters deep, and you'd keep on doing it because the next during that night the Lord sent rain and He filled up the sandy riverbed with water. And so, I just need ditches to catch God's blessing. And so, I've taken that to mean that every day now is an extra day, uh, every day is an extra opportunity to speak for Jesus. And uh, uh, so, it's making new ditches. And when I get tired and say, Lord, I've had enough, could you sort of give me a different direction? he'd just say, well, the valley's not yet full. There's still ditches to be dug.
0: Well, Helen, I think the the key word of today's interview has been privilege. Um, There's been many, you've had a privileged upbringing. You had a privileged education in boarding school, privileged education at Cambridge. But it's wonderful to hear that you felt that the greatest privilege of all has been serving the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of your life. And it has been our privilege and uh, we would encourage the viewers to read out more about Helen and get in touch with Christian Focus publications, uh, read her story and her insights in these four books that we've highlighted today. Thank you for joining us uh, during this interview. Thank you Helen for being with us. Thank you very much. God bless you.